The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Today we talk to someone who fuses millennia of tradition with an industry that's often only about the next thing. It's a brand that does fashion but also a lot more. Her company's Ponamu, carved by her husband and business partner Jason, and her woven kakahu cloaks, have been gifted to visitors from Barack Obama to the Duchess of Sussex. They're part of their unique offering, contemporary pieces that are of the fashion world and also of Te Ao Māori, which is a concept that she's had to forge room for through determination, talent and dedication. Part of being a pioneer is laying the tracks for the people that follow. Kiri Nathan has created the Kahui Collective, a group to foster collaboration and knowledge sharing and create a Māori fashion industry. The group has had scores of designers involved. They've taken trips to China and worked to lift each other up. And in the latest in a long line of awards and recognition for her pioneering work, Kiri is a recent recipient of a Blake Leadership Award. To talk the journey, making fashion work in positive ways, and what's next, Kelly Nathan joins us now. Kelda, thank you for joining us. Morena, Simon. Hey, so first up, how did you get interested in the world of fashion? Um, I think, it, like seriously, it was just watching my grandmother. So she was beautiful. She had a little sewing room in her house, a beautiful old singer, which now sits um, pride of house in our home as soon as you come in. And um, she just had a beautiful take on fashion, you know, that era of woman did. And I loved just watching her for hours. So she had a great love of movies and, you know, actresses and so forth. And she used to know all their first and last names. And we just spent a lot of really beautiful quality time together appreciating fashion. And it's a kind of magic, isn't it? Seeing someone take a piece of cloth and make <laughs> the, make into this amazing shape and three-dimensional maths and it's it's such a wonderful thing to see happen yeah it was really special to her so she'd make herself a new dress every friday and i'd sit there and watch her and sometimes it would be from patterns and sometimes she'd um adapt and and create things from the newspaper and sort of you know sellotape it together and so forth so from a really early age i suppose i was watching pattern development and um construction really um time sort of hand sewing hand tucking hand plucking and so forth um yeah it was beautiful and special really special to me yeah and that kind of the glamour of the fashion clothes but also the craft and the hard work and the maths and the working it out and um it's such a cool thing to see people do yeah definitely uh, it was definitely more the craft than the uh pizzazz of it all 
um, and that special time spent with her. So I think the connection to fashion was through um, a really um, close and authentic relationship. And then when you went into study fashion, what was the environment like? Because fashion kind of, by its very definition, it's kind of groupthink, isn't it? Because everything's in fashion or out of fashion and things have to be just the way that's currently kind of uh, accepted. And, and you had a bit of a broader view. Yeah, I've never really been able to be cool. <laughs> so um, studying fashion was just uh, an organic way of developing something that I felt really passionate about. Um, and I was already a, a young mother at that time, a young solo mother. Um, Ashley was a year old when I first started the uh, three years of study. Uh, and what we didn't realise until many years later is that the tutors that we had were incredible artists and fashion designers in their own right. Um, Arnold Manaki Wilson. I did visual arts, so you know we, we covered a lot of different uh, genres. Um, Lisa Rehana, uh Kim Fraser, you know, these people were individually exceptional. Mm. And so to have had that time with them was was really special. However, it was the first uh, visual arts degree of its time um, back then, way, way back then. <laughs> and uh, 32 of us started that course and five of us graduated. So it was pretty hardcore. Wow. And I, I um, saw a story about, uh, a wonderful story, about how you'd done an assignment that was a black silk dress uh, that had some, um, some some pattern work in it. T- yeah. Tell me that story. <laughs> tell me that story. It's funny. Um, so a lot of our um, study was based around theory. And I hated theory. You know, I just wanted to create things. And I was like, why? Why do we have to say exactly why we've developed this, where the idea comes from? And, you know, I just didn't understand it. I just wanted to make things. And so I was really crap at theory and I got failed on that particular submission um, by Kim Fraser and Deborah Crow, who are two of my favorite women in the world, by the way. Um, and I was like, I really like this garment. I'm going to enter it into the Apple you know, Youth Youth Awards, Apple Computer Youth Awards at the time. And it ended up winning the Women's Wear section and the overall Supreme. And I didn't say anything to my tutors. <laughs> And it ended up on the paper, you know, and they read it. And they were like, why didn't you tell us? And I said, because you failed me. <laughs> <laughs> and then years later, you know, Kim Fraser is a senior lecturer at AUT Fashion now. And um, she brought me in to talk to her first year students. And then I think later on, like her second and third year students. And I always bring that story up. <laughs> so it took a lot of grace not to bring it up at the time. <laughs> She's just mortified every time she can feel it coming. <laughs> And so from, from that kind of path of, of studying visual arts with the fashion focus and then having had that success, you know, winning that award there, tell me about what you did afterwards, heading back to the marae in order to, to fuse a different tradition. Yeah, that happened quite some years later, actually. Um, like I said, the, the three years of study were, were really, really hard. And as a solo mum, there was that extra uh, challenge, I guess. And at the time, and, and you'll probably remember this, um, it was really hard to get into the industry. And so as a solo parent, I just didn't have the um, confidence, I think, to start out then. And so I went into another career. Um, 14 years later, I came back to fashion. Wow, because like, even if you get a job in the industry as well, it pays so poorly that if you have got a student loan and a small Child, like how do you live on the minimum wage that most people get when they first enter the, the, the industry? 
Ah, uh, yeah, it was just it was too scary for me at the time. I was still only um, twenty, I think, yeah, twenty years old when I graduated, and um, Ashley was then three, and so um, yeah, I just couldn't do it. So for those fourteen years that I worked in another industry, I always entered the Star Pacifica fashion shows or the Colt Couture or so whatever. So placed in all of those um, competitions over the years. Um, so I feel like my um, community of designers. Some of them are around these days, but many of them are not. And they were extremely talented, extremely talented designers. However, the support systems weren't in place and there certainly wasn't a market for any kind of um, indigenous fashion. And how did that start to change? Like, um, yeah, t- t- tell me about he- heading to the Marae and then deciding to bring that more into your practice. Um, we were on to our third and fourth child. <laughs> uh, by this time, I'd married Jason, and I just had this overwhelming desire to learn how to weave so I could uh, weave uh, what I thought would be a kurawai at the time for Ashley's 21st. Uh, and, and what was great about this learning is that going back to the marae, I could take the babies with me. So I'd have one on the front pack and one sleeping beside me, and that was two years going back to the Marae to specifically learn um, contemporary kurawai. I'd also gone to um, Unitech at the time to learn traditional raranga with the use of muka and harakeke. And it was, a, it was wonderful. It was almost like stepping into a place that felt like home, but I'd never been there before. Yeah, it was, it was really beautiful. And was that then the start of the label, Kitty Nathan? Um, it wasn't the start. I think uh, unconsciously I'd just been adding to the kite all these different um, ways of getting these sort of creative thoughts out of my head and being able to tactile and and pull these you know things together through the use of pattern drafting, weaving, um, pattern manipulation, uh, fabric drapery and so forth. So really at that stage I was still in development mode. It wasn't until... Um, we won the traditionally inspired uh, section and the Supreme Award at Star Pacifica that I thought maybe we need to give this a bash. And so there was constantly the kind of achievement in the awards and recognition for the work you're doing. But how hard is it to find a market for that kind of thing? Which, yeah, when, when fashion is so, uh, yeah, groupthink and singular. Yeah, it was really, really difficult. So we're talking 2008 when we um, took out uh, Star Pacifica. Uh, no idea, had never, you know, studied business, no idea about business. And of course, as we all know, that's 75% of the game. You know, 15% design and and 75% business acumen is what's going to get you through. So, and we had four children and another one on the way. Uh, so it actually, it took two years of of doing more sort of um, f- fashion shows. We did the inaugural Metamorda, showed at New Zealand Fashion Week for the first time, um, had our fifth child and last child, goodness gracious. Um, and and then we, we, we started, we registered the business. But again, we had no idea what we were doing. We weren't actually trading until 2012. Uh, 2012. Uh, and there wasn't a market for us. There were commercial sort of veins of Māori fashion, um, kaha clothing with Michael Campbell. Uh, but really, there was no examples of 
a fashion label that was sitting at the same level as what we consider to be our high-end New Zealand, you know, fashion designers. And then also with the, the three kind of elements to the business, like if you jump on and have a look today with the the jewellery, the carved ponamu and the like uh, that your husband does, is that right? Yes, and then yes. And then also all of the tradition around the, the woven pieces. Yeah, so when we went out and started looking for stockists, people would um, want to stock either one of the three products. So uh, fashion houses would want to take the clothes but not the weaving or the ponamu. Um, Te Papa and, you know, the Poi Room and places like this. I love the Poi Room, by the way. Um, they would want to take the Ponamu but not the clothing because that's not there. There was no space for us to, to go out and stock with people. And also we had the added um, challenge of people not being able to sell our products with, um, you know, knowledge around the history and storytelling of Ponamu or the history and storytelling of, of Māori weaving. And therein lies a challenge for us because um, we, as a company and people who are drawing from our Māori culture, need to reciprocate uh, a certain level of respect for that culture. And so we can't just go out and sell through anyone. Mm-hmm. It needs to have cultural integrity the whole way, you know, sort of like through. So what we're trying to do at the moment is create... We don't really fit in the playing field at the moment, and so we're trying to create our own playing field. Because tell me about how some of those garments are made, because that's the other thing. It isn't just the story of the tradition. It's actually the story also of, you know, the the prayer, the reflection, the process uh, that goes into the production, which you don't have with, you know, your average thing you're buying in a frock <laughs> shop. Yes, so anything that is inspired by Te Ao Māori, um, especially the the Fakaito Ponamu, so the carving of the Ponamu and the weaving, um, has to adhere to tikanga or protocol. So, yeah, we always begin um, with karakia, and there are certain things that we do do that I think, um, you know, keep us safe, keep the mahi, keep the work safe, and keep everyone else safe uh, around us. And most importantly, it's just it's living that authentic life, it's not selling something um, that we're sort of making up or misappropriating or so forth. It's very, very real for us, and we um, take the responsibility really very seriously. And in things like the kakahu, the woven uh, pieces, it's often kind of like some contemporary materials as well as a fusion of the t- contemporary materials and traditional practices, mm. isn't it? So it's kind of... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a real kind of education piece for the customer. Yeah, in my mind, um, we have the most beautiful and exceptional moka and harakeke weavers in the world. They are absolutely beautiful. So I think that that is the epitome of the ravanga of weaving in New Zealand and, um, and the world. And that area is taken care of. However, what we were trying to create is a fashion brand and a high-end fashion brand. So we're incorporating all the same processes and techniques, however, using contemporary medium. And that makes it achievable for us. Um, I feel like we still uh, obviously have our connection to Te Ao Māori, and we're able to push some boundaries and um, create things that in many ways I haven't seen before. And that's always been a, a very important thing to us. You know, if something's been created before, then what's the point? 
we're trying to create new things all the time and challenge ourselves all the time. And some of the people that, you know, doing this thing that is so unique and new and so kind of like of and special to New Zealand has meant that, um, you, you know, it's been gifted to some amazing dignitaries that come through. You know, t- tell me how that like feels when, you know, you did have to push kind of quite hard to, to make space in the industry for this viewpoint and then to be able to put something on the uh, the, the shoulders of a visiting uh, royal or, or, you know, to, to meet someone like Barack Obama. Yeah, uh, you know, um, I think a lot in that lies in the history of the label. Um, when we were first trying to, trying to break through, these these particular products were the reasons why we weren't accepted into the fashion, you know, arena. However, these particular products are the reason why we've been offered so many very special um, opportunities. And that's just, it's a little bit of karma, really. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a nice... Um, it's a nice acknowledgement of just uh, sticking to your guns and and knowing that you're doing the right thing and knowing that you're on the right path and then that being acknowledged by something like this. However, whenever we gift or um, when anyone purchases anything from us and they connect to it, whether they're a dignitary or some a stranger that we've never met before, um, those are all really special to us. We understand the privilege of what it is to be in a space with someone who's very well known, but to us personally, it's really important to see anyone connect. It's really emotional. Grown men all the time, like so many people, children, elderly, you know, um, seeing them connect to something can become emotional is a really special thing in this day and age. Tell me also about the people who, you know, you're, you're helping to stay in the industry or get into the industry as well because using traditional techniques in modern ways uh helps to helps to kind of keep uh opportunities around to to keep these things moving yeah i think um what you're referring to is the kahui uh, fashion collective and we formed that because we had so many challenges when we were first starting out and i can still still see sort of 90 percent of those challenges for up-and-coming maori and pacifica designers so the the reasoning behind creating Kahui was to, for the first time in New Zealand history, um, create a community where we can come together and share our networks, uh, our resources, our experiences, and genuinely totoko or support our fellow designers. In the past, we've all been friends and we've all seen each other and wished each other really well, but this has been a really focused bringing together of community, traveling to China, um, exposing them to the largest fabric markets and, you know, fashion consumers in the world. So that, you know, traditionally in the fashion industry, people would start out and they'd spend sort of 10 to 15 years just paving their way. And there's a very old school mentality around that being very silo. And so there's never been any sharing because it's like, I've done my time. I've I've found this pa- I've found this patent drafter I've found this machinist you know and I'm not sharing it with you because we've only got a tiny market here you know and I've worked really hard for this you need to do your time and that's a really archaic way of seeing things so I think you know we're so connected to the wider world now through the internet and through online shopping that um, if we just look out to the world our market grows and therefore all we need to do 
is find like-minded designers, come together, collaborate, maintain your unique voice and your unique label, but when you take it to the world, you have a louder voice and a very strong story. And the relationship with China, um, so that's obviously where the, the, the great fabric comes from and the like. Tell me about you know your, your journeys into China. Uh, they started off um, really scary <laughs> about eight years ago. Um, you know, we, we turned up there, uh, we had no idea pretty much what to do, where to go, um, how to source, how to find an agent or even a translator so that you could um, function within those markets. Uh, we didn't know where to stay. You know, it was really, really, it was basic and, and very, very scary. Whereas now um, we feel more than confident. We've had a lot of support over the last three years from NZTE, MFAT, NBIE, you know, um, and these sorts of government um, organisations that are based in China. Um, they have been amazing. And then we've also made um, very personal connections with people that have allowed us to go into China at a really high level. So that last trip that we went up to um, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, Hangzhou, we, we met with what um, could arguably be said to be the highest luxury Chinese brand that is that has still maintained their cultural integrity, um, Shangxia. They're absolutely incredible, have been bought into by Hermes and are now situated in every Hermes you know, boutique around the world. Uh, they hosted us for half a day with traditional tea ceremony and talked through how they were able to maintain their cultural integrity whilst becoming a luxury label. Um, Lane Crawford, so the Harrods of China, we were hosted for an entire day there. And they just, they, they, were, they were amazing. They told us their business strategies, their intermarket strategies, how they maintain their luxury clients. Uh, they were just uh, so kind and so, so sharing. We met with Alibaba Global. And so usually Alibaba will give you 15 minutes in their foyer. We were given two hours with one of their highest um, luxury executives. And we were hosted at the um, Chinese, the, China, the Museum of China with a security <laughs> the security crew, we had the uh, chairman of the of the museum come and meet with us and personally guide us around. The, you know the 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 high level that we went in there at was so humbling and um, so beautiful. But they're very very interested in smaller boutique limited edition cultural narrative brands. And that role of like the government agencies and trying to kind of uh, foster and help export out uh, mm. our, our brands and also help keep kind of manufacturing and industry viable here. Because as you were saying, like <laughs> it's such a global world, like you're not competing against the people down the road. You're yes. competing against every luxury brand on the internet, every fashion brand on the internet. Yeah. How, how, um, what kind of steps are you taking to help try to make sure you can keep your manufacturing in New Zealand and, and keep that kind of talent supply going? Oh, there's, there's a couple of layers there. Uh, the first one is um, running a 12-month men month mentorship uh, program with 10 Māori designers so that we can lift everyone to a level of export. We are um, 
forming the first Māori fashion coalition with NZTE in New Zealand history. Uh, so we'll have wraparound services and education there on how to export specifically into China and the secondary focus is the US. Um, there, <laughs> there's a lot of work that needs to be done and what's great is that these conversations have started with people that can really support and totoko. Uh, and what needs to happen now is that all of these brands come up and meet these opportunities. And so I've kind of set it as one of my goals to make sure that um, we're all stepping into that. And, you know, positions of authenticity, stepping into our power um, and making sure that we take as many people with us as we can. And also, you know, you need to look forward into um, and you need to look up like at the bigger pictures. So. We're talking about developing um, AI manufacturing capability here in New Zealand. And what that would mean is that people wouldn't have to go offshore. They could stay here and remain New Zealand made. Um, it would be more cost effective. And hopefully we'd be able to in some way grow back an industry that's just dying and almost gone here in New Zealand, you know, a manufacturing industry. We're also looking at different ways of connecting to our markets through AR, online AR lookbooks and um, into, into cart, AR intercart capabilities. So when you go to a fashion show and you know your market's all sitting there front row, second row, third row, everywhere, and they see something come down the runway and they're like, oh, I love that. I want to buy that. But it's near on impossible to buy that right then and there and it's near on impossible to try and find it afterwards until it comes out and so forth. So what we want to do is be able to pull up an AR app, hold it up to the garment, and just drag it into your cart. Mm. So you can just buy it straight away, or you can pre-order it straight away. That's so cool, because it does take those kind of uh, those kind of innovations. Because a lot of people, as you say, with the industry being so difficult to manufacture here, like a lot of people go overseas, not because they want to necessarily, but because if you want to get... Um, uh, I don't know if you want to get uh, underwire done. You can't do it in New Zealand anymore. Totally. And yeah. so, and if you want to get leather with lattice work, there's no way you can do that in the country anymore. So, yeah. some people are having to go overseas just because of the lack of options. Oh no, absolutely, and that's been a problem for New Zealand for for, for ages. And, and I honestly believe, hand on heart, that if people had the option, they'd they'd remain New Zealand made. It's really really expensive at the moment, and so we need to look at. Um, you know, the sustainability of our, our own New Zealand manufacturing, our own New Zealand, the people, the actual designers, the sustainability of the designers. Um, let's look after them. Let's try and create options that make it more viable to be New Zealand made, to be able to um, source ethically. You know, let's do this together because it's never been that way. It's, it's pretty funny when we pass all of these you know laws that i a thousand percent agree with on, <laughs> on uh minimum wage and environmental standards which makes it very hard to produce in new zealand uh and, and keep your costs down and then we import stuff that we know is made with slave labor and horrible environmental standards yeah. and you know people people happily buy it yeah well um what's great is that um there's a lot more conscious consumerism these days and uh, certainly our brand and any of the brands that we're trying to mentor, it's really, really important to us that they have a conscious conscience about what they are doing and how they are impacting not just this generation but all the generations to come. And that's about people and planet. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it seems kind of 
idealistic, but at the end of the day, and, and unless we start changing the way that we're functioning right now, we're not going to have a place to be. Yeah, and to run a business with that kind of co-papa yeah. is hard. <laughs> to, to run just your own is hard in, in a place of this kind of size. But then to also make the time to mentor people and to be helping to create change in the industry uh, must be a real challenge. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I've w- I watched the movie Meditor. I, I, I remember sitting there and, and watching her pioneering spirit and her absolute courage in the face of adversity and challenge. And many of us talked after that after that screening and we felt like there were messages the whole way through it. And I felt I got this one message where she said, if not me, then who? And I'm not saying that I'm anything like Medita. She's a goddess. Um, but I do often say to myself and I do often channel her and just think, if not me, then who? Who will do it? So... Yeah, it's just it's it's a responsibility that my poor husband <laughs> has to deal with. <laughs> and and how do things like you know like the recent like leadership award and and how do the awards and recognitions do they do they help do they help you get better sponsorship or support or do they just let you know you're on the right track every now and again <laughs> like yeah I feel really really uncomfortable in those spaces and um, as cliche as that sounds I really really do it makes me kind of squirm a wee bit. However, um, I I fully respect and I'm appreciative of the acknowledgements and also I do understand that it allows me to have um, the ability to speak in certain circles that I may not have been able to prior to um, those kinds of acknowledgements and people are more open to hearing the messages that you know and trying to get through and a lot of people's worlds it's it's currency and just being there, you're making the space for the next people. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that, that. That seems to be. You know, you can't you can't be it if you can't see it. You know, and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's so vital with that. And you know, like along the way, like did people tell you that you know you had uh, children? You know, it's a hard industry. Did people tell you you were crazy to try? Oh yeah, we thought we were crazy to try. Actually, no, we were very naive in the beginning. We thought, oh, this would be marvellous. You can stay home and look after the children and raise the children and just run this, you know, label on the side. Oh, we were nuts. And like any entrepreneur, I think, um, if you really knew what was ahead, would you have started? (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's been lots of people that have not only told us that we're crazy, but that there's no no viable space for us. Um, The clothing was boring and it needed to be in a museum in the bottom of... (laughs) The, the England in a, in a place that no one would ever see it because it was so boring it would probably hurt their eyes. <laughs> that was from a judge one time. That was an interesting experience. Um, there's been people um, who have who just cont- even now you know continuously when you mention the word Maori fashion, you have this image of something from the two dollar shop with a kuru on it. And so that constant conversation of trying to explain and re-explain and re-explain that, no, this is actually a very bespoke and beautiful handcrafted piece or, you know, this is the whakapapa or genealogy of this particular piece. And this is something that, this is a product offering that has never been offered before. Um, So it's really special. You know, having that conversation over and over again can become quite um, exhausting. However, 
you know, the flip side to it is that we get up every day and we're able to do something that we feel has real purpose and we're able to, or this is one of our, this is one of our gauges. If we can look the kids in the eye and feel like we're good people and we're, you know, conducting ourselves in life and in business with integrity, then we feel right. If we kind of feel like, I don't know about that decision or, you know, I'm not too sure about this or that, then we know that that's not right for us. So the kids, yeah, being able to look the kids in the eye is our, is our gauge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so magic. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story today, Kitty Nathan of The Label. Kitty Nathan. You're so welcome. Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. If you are a fan and follower of The Spinoff, make sure you check out The Spinoff Members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that The Spinoff provides. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.